Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Erica L. Fink, MD, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and scientist at the Safar Center for Resuscitation Research in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Fink is with us today to discuss her latest article published in the July Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled Intensive Care for Infants and Children in Haiti in April 2010 published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 12, pages 393 to 397. Thank you for being here, Dr. Fink. Thank you, Dr. Parker, for this invitation. So, Erica, would you please um, give us some background as to how you got to Haiti last year and what you did while you were there? Sure, I'd love to. Well, I have some limited exposure to international medicine and resource-poor regions, but really had no formal training in disaster medicine. And I've always been interested in the intersection between critical care and public health, which seems to converge a little bit more in the resource-poor countries as well. I found that my reaction to the earthquake was the same as many people I spoke with. What can I do to help? Is there any way I can help without getting in the way? And I didn't know anybody that was going in my immediate circle to try to attach myself to. And so I I went to different websites like the American Academy of Pediatrics, Critical Care Medicine, put myself on lists of people interested in helping. And finally, the PICU listserv that some of us subscribe to had a request for volunteers to go and work with Project MediShare and the University of Miami um, in their sort of tent resuscitation critical care uh, city outside the airport. And so I contacted them, and almost immediately they began preparing me for the trip to Haiti. And I basically worked as a pediatric critical care physician, but I worked with an incredible team of people in this first PICU ever in Haiti. And Seattle Children's had a contingent of about 15 volunteers brought together by Amelie, the first author on this paper, who at the time was a second-year PICU fellow, and she brought together uh, fellows, attendings in the PICU, PICU nurses, and a respiratory therapist whose um, skills were, happened to be golden, and a PICU pharmacist. And we were lucky enough to also have a couple of pharmacists from Dallas and nurses from Washington, D.C., amongst others. I found that we had a group that was rather unique in the amount of um, people resources and, and talent compared to other weeks where there might be just two physicians, maybe a a couple of nurses who didn't have PICU experience taking care of these critically ill children. So um, our main goal in the pediatric ICU there was to provide resuscitation and post-resuscitation care for children with traumatic and non-traumatic disease. What kind of resources were there for pediatric critical care? Well, there were more than perhaps you might expect for it, but... um, Sometimes less than, obviously, you want. And an interesting question. You know, most of their resources were brought there by the NGO, Project MediShare, from donations. And although they tried to request, you know, they would put out requests for certain items, you were really left with whatever showed up on the truck and um, was sitting in what we, with some of our pharmacists, uh, 
called Costco, which is this enormous <laughs> tent. <laughs> Everything was in a large circus tent and called it Costco. It just had crates and crates of materials, some of which were unpacked and somewhat organized, and including you know, ventilator tubing, intubation equipment, uh, IV accessories, um, fluids, fluid bags, all kinds of medicines. So uh, while we had lots of people resources, um, we had approximately eight ventilators, and I think we had an extra one put together by our um, respiratory therapist from Seattle, giving us nine, and she even at one point hooked up a pseudo CPAP um, machine for a baby that benefited from some high flow and when we had run out of ventilators. Did you have laboratory or uh, radiology resources? Our lab resources were spotty. They're intermittent. When we were able to get them, we were able to get some electrolytes, but uh, that depended on the temperature of the day um, and whether the freezer could make them cold enough to be uh, reliable. And, you know, at night, if we needed them, they were not available to us. We were able to diagnose malaria with thick smears. We had someone that week who knew how to read them. And we had intermittent blood gases, uh, but very infrequently. As far as radiological resources, there was an x-ray machine there, but it was broken at the time and wasn't expected to be fixed for some time. There was the ability to have fluoroscopy, and I saw them use that once to set a femur fracture. must have been a, a challenge managing critically ill intubated children on mechanical ventilators with no x-rays and very minimal labs. Um, I think that we sort of thrived on the ability to just use our, our best judgment and physical examination to deliver this care. And um, one big challenge we didn't think about was that there was no humidification system for the ventilators. So almost every day there was a child that, who was intubated who had plugged the tube and we couldn't um, release it and we had to reintubate. Hmm. And that uses up resources as well. Sure. So what we decided was every morning we'd have our rounds together um, and then we'd kind of split up the next 24 hours and we'd decide who can be extubated and, you know, really push the limits of who really needed the breathing tube because that meant that we couldn't, that we could or couldn't take in new children. Right. Because we only had so many resources. So it really did come down to um, making some tough decisions. How did you triage children to the PICU? Well, uh, Project MediShare had a um, pretty strong administrative core that was there, and they, they also had a very good security People couldn't just walk in. Uh, you weren't going to get hundreds of people showing up at your door that could come in, which in a sense was good so that it was organized, but in another sense, it was a little less available to people. So how people got in was they'd, they'd drive up in their private car or a taxi, or they'd walk or they'd carry somebody. Um, and if we had room for them to treat them, they would come in either to our ER, which sat outside of our pediatric tent, or if we knew they were coming, say they had radioed ahead to Project MediShare and said they were bringing a child, say, that was seizing for seven hours on an overland trip, they suspected meningitis, um, we'd prepare in the ICU for intubation and um, resuscitation with IVs and just bring them right back to the PICU, sort of like a shock trauma center. And another, for instance, we you know we took in a child that had life-threatening asthma and was intubated at an outside facility. It was the University Hospital downtown, 
And since they didn't have ventilators, they called us for transfer uh, since we had the only pediatric equipment. Mm -hmm. that, that happened to go very well. So was it kind of first come, first serve? If you didn't have a bed, sorry, we can't take you? Right. And Project MediShares administrators would call us or come over to us and say, every morning, what is your census? Or every night, what is your census? What do you have open? And that's how many they would let through. That was pretty much it. Wow. Yeah. So what kind of illnesses did you treat and what kind of outcomes did you have just in the short time you were there? We tended to see two different types of illnesses, you know, broadly anyway, either acute disease or sort of an acute presentation of a chronic or genetic sort of syndrome. And the two seem to have quite different outcomes. Um, the children presenting who were previously healthy uh, with acute disease, some of them might have experienced trauma like a traumatic brain injury or burns was, was a, a very frequent diagnosis among children who especially lived in the tent cities. Their only they didn't have electricity, so they would, their parents would use candles at night. And um, in one case, a baby uh, had came to us with second-degree burns over his face, hands, and trunk after the candle had tipped over and lit up his bed net. Um, he actually was going to have a very good outcome. Um, he was brought to us very quickly. He didn't have a lot of secondary issues, and he was not malnutritioned in the first place. He was actually quite quite a robust baby. So I think he, he did very well. And then other children I mentioned who had acute disease, like the child with asthma, he was extubated within 24 hours and um, eating our snacks <laughs> several hours later and vigorous. Uh, and a couple of the kids with meningitis survived. One of them I know, um, I left after I left for the week, she was not able to take in food by mouth. She still had a feeding tube within the pediatric ward. And, you know, with high hopes of trying to recover um, without any sort of rehabilitation strategy. And then there were some children with acute diseases, especially who presented with neurologic disease, um, seizures, who uh, did not survive. And we didn't have the ability to perform microbiology on them. If they happen to have a thick smear with you know, malaria, or parasites, then we can diagnose cerebral malaria. Um, and then there were a couple of children who who had congenital disease, including uh, an almost one-year-old who, there's a photograph of her in our picture with Amelie, a lovely little baby with trisomy 21 who presented with a very harsh systolic murmur and obvious congestive heart failure. We didn't have a chest x-ray to prove it or an echocardiogram available. But it was pretty obvious she was at the end of her life. Um, and we initially resuscitated her and then gave her diuretics to give her the best chance. And then we, we actually had to have sort of an ethical group discussion about how to care for her after we had saved her. And with her parent, um, her mother was there, and we had excellent Haitian translators. We all decided that we would extubate her and do the best we can to wean her off the therapies, but that she was likely not going to survive long term. And there happened to be a church nearby that would take in uh, a couple of patients that just needed palliative care. Um, her, her mother actually considered that, but then wanted her to just um, spend the rest of her time in the hospital. So she passed away after a few days, but um, not without a fight. 
given the very limited resources in Haiti um, and in numerous other developing countries, uh, can you comment on the use of the resources needed for a pediatric intensive care unit? Yes. We gave this a lot of thought and had discussions amongst um, many of the team members down down there, um, and even afterwards, obviously, when we were writing this paper. And I spoke a little bit about the ethics. You know, one thing I, the ethics of having a pediatric ICU um, in such a resource-poor country that only has a 70% at best immunization rate, malnutrition rate of 50%, et cetera, what I found was the Haitian parents are not resigned to any sort of fate for their children. They all want them to survive and thrive just as much as any parent in Pittsburgh that I've um, gotten to work with. And obviously, as physicians, we feel that these children are just as deserving of uh, the best kind of health care possible as any other child. And in this situation, the government wasn't paying for these efforts. It was private donations and volunteers giving their time. So it was sort of a unique situation. Um, Project MediShare is continuing their cause now in a, an actual building, and they want to combine both an educational arm, trying to educate patients and basic uh, health care delivery to try to take over for our, these volunteers, and you know that's a very nice goal, um, big challenge. And they continue to be sort of a trauma hospital and critical care hospital in Port-au-Prince. But um, I also got to have some discussions with one of my more senior colleagues from Melbourne, Australia, Dr. Frank Shan, who a lot of people in this community know. He's given much of his time in his life to um, various resource-poor countries, especially Papua New Guinea. And he stressed to us that, and me, that countries or regions shouldn't really think about putting in a pediatric ICU until the under-five child mortality rate is less than 30 to the 40. Now, Haiti's less than five child mortality rate for 1,000 live births is around 80 to 90. Um, and in the poorer communities, it's up to 125. And that's on the, the 80 range is on par with Pakistan and Kenya, countries like that, whereas the U.S. is eight and Sweden's number one at only three. In, in this case, when he's suggesting that places like Haiti should be focusing on malnutrition, vaccination, clean water, sanitation, education, things like that. And I totally agree with him. And what our, we kind of recommended to the Project MediShare people when they asked for our feedback about our experience was to consider pairing up with an outpatient facility that can provide these basic needs, you know, and also perhaps some follow-up for children who they help get back um, on their feet afterwards. Must have given you a very interesting perspective on how we do things here in the United States. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's a challenge. And, of course, you come back and you adjust. You know, it really, going to places like Haiti and having this experience and going through the thought processes of uh, digesting what you'd been through, it, I think it makes you a better doctor, um, more thoughtful, perhaps. And really, uh, if, you know, if I ever go back, uh, which we've had some residents and fellows from here go back, to, um, to Haiti, you know, there are some very innovative, smart people coming up with lower t- lower cost technologies that are more cost effective and perhaps, you know, and would be considered critical care sort of delivery. You know, perhaps that we don't, we don't have to bring our resources. We can bring resources that are 
that are designed for places like Haiti and accomplish the same thing or as good as we can. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Yes. Um, I wanted to tell people that I wasn't only on this campus um, delivering health care. Serendipitously, I met a British woman who was in the camp while I was on a break. She's a resident of Haiti for approximately nine or ten years and owns several businesses on the island, including a tourist agency. And she was seeing off a tourist who had become ill. Um, so I asked her if it was possible to take us on a tour uh, locally around Port-au-Prince. And almost an hour later, she had a van there and took the first group of eight or ten of us and in the afternoon did the same thing. And, and between her, our driver and her, we had this amazing tour of Port-au-Prince, uh, which was full of hustle and bustle, like um, you might expect things are back to normal, except you realize that there's really not much recovery yet going on. But people were doing their best just to make a living. It was pretty obvious they were working hard. And as a real treat, she guided us to a village of metal workers, Corée de Bouquet, where there were hundreds of people that specialized in metalworking and art. And we all found at least one item to take home to cherish as a reminder of our visit. And uh, it was great to uh, see the culture of the Haitian people, not just the devastation that they had gone through. And I'm very appreciative of that ex the whole experience of um, getting to be a part of their lives. Well, thank you very much, Erica, for talking with us today. Thank you, Dr. Parker, very much. We have been talking with Dr. Erica L. Fink from Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about her article, Intensive Care for Infants and Children in Haiti in April 2010, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in July 2011. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. As CCM offers regularly scheduled, thought-provoking webcasts on cutting-edge topics within critical care, webcast participants will receive continuing education credit and have the convenience of attending from their hospitals, offices, or homes. Visit www.sccm.org webcasts for details. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.